I'm with Dave, K3 Echo Lima. You've just come back from Heard Island. Mm -hmm. A big de expedition, uh, a few, de a few uh, weeks on the ocean and a few weeks on the island. What was it like? Oh, it, was a, it was a really intense experience, both the uh, time on the boat and uh, also the time on the island. It uh, just seems to have flown past. I can't believe it's nearly two months since, uh, since we left. So you departed from South Africa. What mm -hmm. was leaving, uh, you know, civilization like? Well, you know, any been on a few of these uh, somewhat lengthy boat trips before, and uh, you know, you leave port, and uh, immediately we knew we were on the sea because we hit rough seas uh, coming out of South Africa, and so everyone was, uh, or just about everyone was pretty sick immediately. So that took our minds off everything. We were just. Uh, thinking about our stomachs and how we felt and trying to survive the boat trip to begin with. Did you activate uh, the station on the way, uh, you know, Maritime Mobile? Yeah, we had, um, it, the call sign was ZL, because it's a New Zealand boat, stroke ZS9HI, that was a special event call that uh, the South African hams had got for us, stroke Maritime Mobile, and um, we set up a, a station on the Braveheart, we had a, a Hustler uh, vertical on the um, rear deck, and um, a K3 just barefoot in the, uh, in the lounge area in the Braveheart. Um, some of us are not too good, sat in front of a radio on a moving boat, so we, some of us didn't make too many cues. Other people were just fine there, and we actually made 7,000 plus QSOs uh, on the way down, Maritime Mobile. And the other thing we had, we set up a whisper beacon. And so when people weren't making cues on the K3, we switched the antenna over to the whisper beacon, and so people could follow us across the, uh, um, you know, as we headed down into the Southern Ocean and track where we were going. So you got to uh, Heard Island. You uh, you know you got the Braveheart crew um, helping you unpack and move everything to the beach. What was setting up the shack like? So the location that we had to set up was pretty much defined by the terms of the permit that we have from the Australian Antarctic Division. So we we landed at Atlas Cove. And then the um, uh, location of the camp was fairly close to the old uh, Australian research station. There's still some remains of it there. Um, but it's uh, several hundred meters away from where we had to land. And so uh, we, we landed stuff on the beach. It's a, a somewhat sheltered anchorage. It's not great, but, you know, uh, a lot of the time it's usable. Um, and then the, the Braveheart crew would make multiple trips in, uh, in their uh, small boats to the beach, would offload onto the beach. And one of the items we took with us was a, uh, um, an ATV. So we actually used that to haul uh, the Braveheart's uh, trolleys, wagons, um, to move stuff across the Nullarbor, which is a big flat plain. Um, to the edge of the lava flow and actually onto the lava flow where we were um, uh, where we set up camp so there was groups of people shuffling stuff getting stuff off the boat shuffling it to to shore moving it onto shore other people moving um, the equipment onto the uh, um, trolley the ATV pulling that up to the camp and then others of us were uh, busily putting up the uh, camp and of course given the environment these are not lightweight tents we had um, two very large um, tents roughly 20 by 25 feet 
um, which were uh, provided to us as sponsorship by a company in the US called HDT. These are called airbeam tents. The structural elements are big air-filled blow-up arches. Um, sounds a little flimsy. These are incredibly strong and sturdy. They're really rock hard. You think you could shoot a bullet at these things. Um, and it would just bounce off. Um, they're so uh, solid when they're um, <clears throat> when they're inflated, and then the tent fabric is uh, stretched between these great big uh, meter-long stakes to try and get into the ground to support this thing. Because of course we're we're expecting extremely strong winds. We had extremely strong winds, so um, that was our shelter and support system. So it takes some time to put all that together. Although you know these are relatively quick to put up considering the size of them, um, and then. Um, you know the the living material that you need has to go in there things like the bunk beds and um, tables and such and then setting up the stations so at the end of the first day we basically had the camp established we had the generators we had living uh, quarters there and we had two stations set up at the end of that first day um, with antennas for 40 and 30 meters because we wanted to operate through that first night and then after that um, the next morning uh, once it got light, everyone started working on the rest of the stations and the antennas. And so over the next couple of days, uh, we established the rest of the, uh, the radio camp. So there were multiple tents or what, everything in one, one tent? So there were two of these airbeam tents with a, a vestibule in between them. And again, this was uh, sort of custom built for us by HDT. And, and they ran in parallel, so they're both living and cooking and eating and, and shack uh, as one you know, unit per tent? Yeah, so we had one tent which was basically the sleeping area and also storage area for personal equipment and other stuff that needed to be protected. And then, um, so that was one of these two airbeam tents. And the other airbeam was where we had the six operating positions, the six stations, um, plus we had the galley cooking area there and then also we had um, it was a sort of Heard Island Internet Cafe because one of our other sponsors was Inmarsat and so they provided us with multiple satellite began terminals uh, as well as unlimited uh, satellite time for free um, and uh, this was what we used to support the DXA the real-time um, reporting of contacts that are made and so people should have been able to log on to there and see immediately if they'd made a QSO or not so um, that sponsorship from Inmarsat the sponsorship from HDT was really really important and um, you know the, the, the value of that to us um, was you know um, probably in the hundreds of thousands of dollar range in total um, and we, we approached those companies, we actually approached them. The pitch was the whole project, because the Heard Island project was not just a de-expedition, it was also a scientific uh, expedition, and um, it was really the science part, um, which uh, I think was attractive to a lot of these companies who, you know, normally you don't think of them as sponsoring amateur radio operations, but the fact that this was a, a more broadly based expedition, it enabled us to tap into these companies, companies like Inmarsat, companies like HDT, who, who you know normally wouldn't be um, wouldn't be perhaps interested in a solely amateur radio operation. So you did a lot of logistical exercises. You did a lot of operating, and, and and you had a lot of fun along the way. What's your fondest memory? 
Um, you know, if I if I think about um, operate, you know, there are different times when you were operating. Um, you know, you had a particularly great pile-up, or you had just a wonderful run. I remember one run on 12-meter CW, which was just fantastic and just seemed to go on forever. Um, perhaps my best radio operating moment was um, on 160 meters. Um, Vadim UT6UD was uh, was in charge of the 160 operation. Um, early on, I'd asked him to... Um, uh, you know, develop a plan. Uh, we we talked about different antennas, and he'd made a proposal for 160. So we said, okay, yes, let's do this. And he would usually operate from dusk until sometime in the middle of the night, and then at 3 a.m. I would take over and operate 160 for the rest of the night until dawn. And um, we had one super opening. Um, it was maybe the third fourth night we were on top band um and your new conditions were special because most nights when the gray line came across the eastern u.s maybe i'd work a couple of stations and it wasn't until the gray line arrived with us that i really started to, to work a bunch of stations but that night from the time the gray line hit the east coast of the of north america yeah, it was working plenty of stations, and then when the grey line arrived on Heard Island, then, you know, we were working stations in um, all across the US as far as the Rocky Mountains and uh, places like uh, South Dakota, for example, and Minnesota, um, which, you know, that's really a challenge on top band from Heard Island. And um, I think my favourite QSO was when uh, I heard W0GJ calling, and he was on the last Heard Island expedition and was the guy who did a lot of the top band and low bands work then. And so to be able to work him, that was just a real thrill, I think, from both ends. And uh, one of the special things about this or the unusual things about this expedition, like I was saying earlier, was the, the connectivity we had um, with Inarsat sponsorship. And so um, a lot of the time that we were operating on top band, we were also logged into the low bands chat room and so you know um you could you could really see the excitement of people when someone got a cue and uh, you know they wow they would post on there and then uh, you know glenn sent me an email a few minutes after he made his cue saying yeah basically he was just so um thrilled to have made that uh, really challenging cue from uh, uh, his location in the uh, uh, western U.S. out to Heard Island. So that was, I think that was my top radio operating uh, moment. I'm with Dave, K3 Echo Lima, and you're listening to News West.